Good morning. Welcome to West Hills. So good to have you with us. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at West Hills. And before we dive in this morning, I just want to say one more uh, public thank you and celebration um, of, of all that the Lord did here in our midst at West Hills last weekend. There were so many so many firsts we're celebrating together. Um, our first Good Friday service together as a church in many years. The first time we offered and actually needed two services. We look like we're getting pretty close to that again this morning. Um, first time, yeah. That's exciting. That's exciting. First time we, we welcomed over 100 visitors last week. God is doing neat things here at West Hills. Um, many people uh, told me, People who aren't at West Hills, who don't know you guys, <laughs> told me to expect to lose a lot of our membership uh, throughout this pastoral transition. If you're new, um, five weeks ago I took over for our pastor, uh, senior pastor, Pastor Gary, of 30 years. People told me to expect to lose, lose people, um, and instead, God is moving and God is bringing people to this church in a way that only he could. Um, and so I just want to get publicly with you, celebrate that, and give glory to God. Um, be encouraged. I am so encouraged. I hope you're encouraged by what he's doing here. So let's keep celebrating that. Let's keep praying together that the Lord would continue to build his church at West Hills for years to come. And if you are new, if you're one of those new visitors we're talking about, we're so uh, excited to have you. Maybe have you back. Maybe this is your second week following up from Easter. Maybe this is your first week. Met a couple first-time visitors this morning. We're so um, glad to have you here and have you be a part of what God is doing in our midst. So um, I had to do some homework this week on how to follow up with visitors after Easter. And everyone says the same thing. Start a new sermon series that you can invite people back for and make sure it's especially um, accessible to those church newcomers. Well, we're kind of doing that this morning. Um, we started this series rooted a few weeks back now um, at the end of the Gospel of Mark to cover Jesus' death and resurrection during the Easter season. But now we're going to go back this morning to chapter 1, to the beginning and as far as accessibility goes, I just want to say this this morning. Um, here at West Hills, we believe that the Bible is the unchanging word of God. Okay, so there are any number of uh, sexy, topical, relevant series that we could preach on. Gender and sexuality, race relations, the future of evangelism, sharing Jesus with robots, the list goes on. But at the end of the day, we, if we believe that God has spoken in the course of human history, direct revelation, his inspired and errant word, the Bible, then we would be foolish not to submit ourselves to its authority, trusting that there must be a reason why God includes pages and pages about this obscure guy, John the Baptist, and virtually no pages about transgenderism. And that, that doesn't mean that we avoid the difficult, important, timely issues of our day. That just means that we realize that we are ultimately best served by investing our time in God's word, in God's priorities, where God puts the focus. And so we're going to do that together this morning by going to John chapter 1. If you would stand with me as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word, our passage is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll read it for us. The words... If you want to look up in your Bible, they'll be on the screen in front of you. 
This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray now, as Scott just prayed over us, that the meditations of our hearts would also be pleasing to you, our Lord, and our our rock and our redeemer, Father, that just as you did inspire these words 2,000 years ago as Mark penned them, you would now inspire our hearts, our understanding, our application of these truths that we would leave here changed this morning, different, by the power of your word. For your glory, in your name we pray, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you are new here today, maybe you're even new to Christianity, if nothing else this morning, I hope that you will leave feeling really reassured that it's okay to question the Bible, that that God is big enough to handle your questions, because guess what? Your pastor has quite a few of them. I've got seven, in fact, from just these first 11 verses of Mark, and so that's going to be our outline for this morning. So the first question I have for Mark today is, why, Mark, do you start your biography of Jesus with John the Baptist? We've got four Gospels in the New Testament. Luke begins his with the infancy narrative. Makes sense. You start with the story surrounding the birth of Jesus, the Christmas baby Jesus that, like Ricky Bobby, so many of us love most. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy, another good choice that gives us a context for understanding who Jesus was, where he came from. John says, I'll do you one better. He goes back even further, begins with Jesus, the pre-incarnate word before the beginning of time. In the beginning was the word. All things were made through him. And then we got Mark. And Mark starts in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so far, so good. Let's go straight to the gospel. Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed one, the very Son of God, Mark tells us. All right, Mark, so tell me this story of Jesus. And where does he take us in verse 2? As it is written in the 
Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John appeared. Whoa, whoa, whoa. John. I thought this was a story about Jesus. Mark only includes five explicit Old Testament quotes in his entire book. And this one, the first one, heralding the beginning of Jesus' story, isn't about Jesus at all. It's about John the Baptist. Why? Why Mark? Why would you start with him? The short answer is Mark wants to root our understanding of Jesus in the overarching context of the biblical story of redemption. The gospel of Jesus, verse one, is not primarily a set of facts about Jesus, it's a story. And to fully understand and appreciate that story, we need context. And for that, Mark takes us to three separate passages in the Old Testament in verses two and three. First, to Exodus 23, 20. Second, to Malachi three, verse one. And finally, to Isaiah 40, verse three. Now. I've got them on the screen for you. I want you to consider the importance of each of those. In in Exodus 23, God is rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and promising to now guide them into freedom in the promised land. The second one, the prophecy of a messenger in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 is the final thing we hear at the close of the Old Testament before God goes silent for 400 years until who shows up on the scene in Mark chapter 1? John the Baptist, the new Elijah. And finally, in Isaiah 40, it's all about the new and more glorious exodus when Yahweh himself will come and return triumphantly, lead, restore, dwell with his people forever. And so John the Baptist is serving not only as a bridge to link us to thousands of years of Old Testament history and prophecy, now with the dawning of a new era, a new testament, but he also prepares the way for the one to come, which brings us to question number two. Who was John the Baptist really? Well, here's how John the Baptist himself answers the question from John chapter one. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet, Isaiah? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am but the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John says, there is another coming who you've been expecting you've been waiting for, whose shoes I'm not even worthy to untie. He is the main act you've been waiting for. He's the headliner. I'm just the opening band here to kick off the show. I'm the front runner, the prophet from Malachi 4. And look how he's described in verse 6. It says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That's a bizarre opening act. It's like Lady Gaga and Ozzy Osbourne got together and John the Baptist. But what's, what's going on here? Well, Mark's taking us back to 2 Kings 1.8, where the prophet Elijah is depicted as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. It's verbatim. 
how John the Baptist is described. Jesus makes this connection clear in Mark chapter 9, verse 13. When he's speaking of John, he says, I tell you that Elijah has come. Not literally, but he is a prefiguring, right? In fact, some people thought that John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Elijah. Some people even thought John himself was the Messiah. In fact, little known fact, there is still a small sect of people today called the Mandeans who believe that John the Baptist is the Messiah. He's an important prophet in Islam and Baha'i and Gnosticism. Even the New Testament says more about John the Baptist than anyone other than Jesus, Paul, and Peter. 249 verses in 27 different passages. He's bizarre, but he's important. Important historical figure, and yet John himself testifies, I don't deserve the spotlight. I am only here to point the spotlight on Jesus, to pave the way for Jesus. Which leads us to question three. How? How does John pave the way? We hear in verses four and five, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Question three, what was John's baptism exactly? Mark informs us of five things. It's a baptism in the wilderness of repentance for the forgiveness of sins upon confession of sin and unto all of Judea and Jerusalem. So let's unpack those. In the wilderness, a powerful symbol in the Old Testament. It's a place where God tested his people's faith and when they failed, it's a place associated with God's judgment. So the wilderness signifies disobedience and rebellion and a desire to start over. A fresh start symbolized best in baptism. Take a bath, get clean. And while there was no baptism in the Old Testament, we do know of other contemporaneous Jewish writings that the practice had developed by the first century, particularly for converts to Judaism. Okay, so baptism was an an initiation rite of passage into this new faith, much in the same way that it is for us today as Christians. So Mark Strauss points out John was treating the people of Israel as Gentiles and calling them back to God. But that requires, verse four, repentance. This is a baptism of repentance. Confess your sins, verse five, and then turn from them, which is also symbolized in baptism. At the end of the service this morning, I will disappear. I'll go through our secret tunnels at the church and I'll magically reappear right up here with Courtney Johnson. I get the privilege of baptizing her. And when I lower her down into the water, Courtney is symbolizing her death, being laid in the ground spiritually, that she has put to death her old ways, her old self. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The old me has died. And that, re- that repentance purchases for us, verse 4, the forgiveness of sins. In the New Testament, we are instructed to repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, Acts 3.19. But a thousand years earlier, in 2 Chronicles 7, God had already told Solomon, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin. So back to the New Testament, in 1 John 1.9, 
John promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But a thousand years before that, Proverbs 28, 13 had promised, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So what's going on here? You should be asking, what is different today then? What's different? If a thousand years before Jesus, people repented and were forgiven, if John could baptize people as a symbolic reminder, then what's different about baptism today? What's, what's different about baptism since Jesus? What's the difference when Courtney goes down into the water and comes out than when any number of the masses that came to John and he immersed them in the Jordan? Mark says it was all of Judea came out to John. Everyone admits that they're sinful. Remember my question from last last week on Easter? How many of us confess that we're imperfect, that we're sinners? Everyone raises their hand for that. We all admit that. Everyone can receive John's baptism. What's different about Christian baptism? Why so few? Every single person John baptized went into the water feeling heavy, feeling weighed down by the weight the guilt of their sin. And when they came out of the water, they were left feeling empty. A clean slate, a blank slate, absolution of their guilt. A baptism of repentance gets you back to square one with God. Sin's forgiven. Praise God. That's good news. Now just keep, go on and keep all of God's law. Don't ever sin again and you'll be fine. Good luck. John says in verse 8, I baptize you with water for repentance, but Jesus will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. Question number four, what is baptism with the Holy Spirit? Baptism with the Holy Spirit, in essence, friends, means that when you come to saving faith in Jesus today, you are not only emptied of the crippling weight of sin and shame, but you are actually filled with God's own power and presence through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Filled with God's own power and presence, God's own spirit. It actually takes up residence in our hearts. So when Courtney goes down into the water. She's not only symbolizing that God has put to death her sins once and for all, all her sins, past, present, and future, by Jesus' finished work on the cross now, eternal redemption, but when she comes out of the water now, she's also reminded of the new life that Christ has raised her to by the power of his own resurrection. His same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 6, the Holy Spirit is now at work in Courtney's heart as well, raising her to new life too. That's baptism today. And actually, it's been at work since the moment of Courtney's salvation, since she was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptism in water is a symbol, merely a symbol, but a significant symbol of that internal reality in her heart. Friends, this is a profound mystery. There's not another religion in the world whose God is powerful enough to create the universe and yet who cares for us so intimately that he would condescend and not only live amongst us, not only suffer and die for us, but actually abide within us. Our God lives within us. 
And here's what I want to stress about this baptism of the Holy Spirit for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and received his spirit. That should change us, transform us. John Piper puts it this way. This is an extended quote, but read it with me. When you read the New Testament honestly, you can't help but get the impression of a big difference from a lot of contemporary Christian experience. For them, the Holy Spirit was a fact of experience. For many Christians today, it's a fact of doctrine. In Protestant evangelicalism, it's equated with a subconscious work of God in regeneration, which you only know you have because the Bible says you do if you believe. It's easy to imagine a spiritual counselor today saying to a new convert, don't expect to notice any difference. Just believe that you've received the Spirit. But that is far from what we see happening in the New Testament. So Paul asked in Acts 19.2 when he meets the confused disciples of John the Baptist, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What would a contemporary Protestant evangelicals say in response to that question. I think we would say something like, I thought we automatically received the Holy Spirit when we believed. I don't understand, Paul, how you can even ask the question. Paul asked it because receiving the Holy Spirit is a real experience. There are marks of it in your life. Hear this. I sometimes fear that we have so redefined conversion in terms of human decisions and have so removed any necessity of the experience of God's spirit that many people think they are saved when in fact they only have Christian ideas in their head and not spiritual power in their heart. Let me read that again. Is it possible, friend, that you're here this morning and you've been at church for a long time And you think you're saved when in fact you have good Christian ideas in your head and not spiritual, new life, resurrection, Holy Spirit power in your heart. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is a real life-changing experience. Christianity is not merely an array of glorious ideas, the performance of rituals and sacraments. It is the life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, I ask you this morning, has your life been changed by the power of the gospel? Has Jesus changed your life by the redemption he bought you on the cross and brought you through his spirit? Listen, Jesus didn't die so that you could believe the right facts about him. He didn't die so you could be a slightly better, more moral, ethical person. He died to give you a new heart. This is not elective cosmetic surgery. This is heart transplant, okay? Jeremiah 17, 9. That's what we need. That's what he died for. Someone else has to die for you to get their heart. His heart, his spirit. And if you really have it, your life should look different Shouldn't we expect a heart that was filled with anger and pride and lust and malice and envy and covetousness and gossip and self-centeredness that is transformed, now a heart filled with the Spirit to look different, noticeably different, fruit-bearing. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit, love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. If it's really His Spirit, the seed that's planted in your heart, the fruit that is manifest, that grows from that tree, should be the fruit of the Spirit. Praise God. Praise God that in a world that tells us leopards don't change their spots, a world that tells us people don't really change, they can't really change, Jesus says, just watch me. Watch me. And he transforms us. Praise God that we get to hear testimony of that this morning from Courtney how he's transformed her life. Praise the Lord for the supernatural work of his spirit. But all of this leads us to a fifth question. Why then was Jesus baptized? I mean, Jesus didn't need any of this. If John's baptism of repentance was for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God as John himself recognized, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Matthew tells us that John actually tried to stop Jesus from baptizing him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? So, why was Jesus baptized? How does he respond? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So get this, at the moment of your salvation, no matter how subtle and gradual the change seemed to be to you, a profound transformation happened for God from his perspective. Night to day, you went from being viewed by God as a sinner standing under his righteous wrath and condemnation to being clothed in all the righteousness of Jesus. All of your sin was transferred. The theological term is imputed. Imputed to Jesus on the cross, and all of his righteousness in exchange is imputed to you that is required for your salvation, your eternal life. It's transferred to you. So then, why was Jesus baptized? Because it made the righteousness that Jesus traded and imputed to you whole. It fulfilled it, all righteousness. Why? Because God commands baptism. He commands it. Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Baptism is not something cute that we do for the kids when they get old enough to understand the right things about Jesus. But now that I'm older, heck, I'm twice the age of the pastor. I've been a Christian for decades now. Plus, I really don't like public speaking. It'd be too awkward for me to get baptized at this point. Plus, it might be offensive to my parents who baptized me as an infant. And all the other reasons that you have offered not to be baptized Brothers and sisters, can I shoot you straight this morning? If you have turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are saved, but you have not yet been baptized in water to publicly, symbolically 
Identify yourself with him in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins in obedience to Jesus, then biblically you are in disobedience of God's will for you, of fulfilling righteousness, of living the most righteous life you could. It's that simple. Is this the unforgivable sin? No. Can you go to heaven without being baptized as a believer? Yes. But I ask you this morning, why would you want to? Baptism is not just a command from God. It's a gift. It is a gift, a good gift. And who gets a gift and says, do I have to open it? It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness, to fully please God. So here's the deal. I'm rushing in between sermon and baptism this morning, but we're going to fill up the tank again next Sunday, and we're going to share the gift of baptism with Allie Smith. I have one person signed up right now. We would love for you to join her. We would love for you to officially join the, the visible family of God the body of believers, Christ's body here on earth. This is your rite of passage into that. We would love to have you join us and do that in obedience to your Lord and Savior, Jesus. I hope that Allie won't be the only one I baptize next week. I hope that the Lord will stir your heart this morning and this week as you pray and think and study scripture for yourself more about these things. And speaking of which, I've run myself out of time for question number six, <clears throat> so I'm going to leave question six with you to answer for homework this week. I thought this would be kind of fun anyways. Where were the Holy Spirit and the Father before Jesus' baptism? Mark doesn't even include the stories of Jesus' conception, his birth, his childhood, his adolescence. But even in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John that do include those stories, it's not clear the exact relationship between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for those first 30 years of Jesus' life. And so verses 10 and 11 here of Mark chapter 1 is really the first strong Trinitarian sort of language we get where we really see the Bible point to all three of these persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together. And so I ask you, was Jesus himself baptized with the Holy Spirit before this? We know he was sinless, but was, where was the Holy Spirit? Was it in his heart? And then he just like went away and right before the baptism, we're going to make a big public show of this. And so I'm just going to go up to heaven for a second and then split the clouds open so I can come and everybody can know that you've got the Holy Spirit. How did that all work? This is, you know, where was, where was the Father before this? This is the first time that we directly hear from God the Father in the gospel. We've got angels coming and saying things. We've got messengers, John the Baptist, prophecies of the Old Testament. This is the first time we hear God the Father open his mouth. Surely Jesus had a relationship with his Father before this, but was it just a private thing? Why did God wait until Jesus' baptism to, to open his mouth and speak up? These are the kinds of questions we ought to ask ourselves and each other 
and God's word and God, the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and pray as we study scripture. And so I'll let you ask, continue to ask those this week and be a prize for whoever has the best answer next week. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I do want to leave you with some answers rather than just questions. Answers specifically to question number seven, our final question. How does any of this apply to me? How does it apply to me? I know a lot more about John the Baptist now, thank you, about the Holy Spirit, hopefully, about baptism. What am I supposed to do with all this information? So I want to leave you with six quick takeaways, one for each of the previous points. And since I've already left you with your takeaway for number six, go do your homework. I'll give you points one through five. Number one, ground yourself in God's word this week. Mark roots our understanding of Jesus in the Old Testament, and we ought to do the same for ourselves. We cannot truly understand who Jesus is without understanding the whole redemptive story of Scripture. And so read it. Read it for yourself. Study it. Immerse yourself in Scripture. That's what the word baptizo means, immerse. Baptize yourself this week in Scripture. Point number two, Live to make Jesus known. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. John, John baptized all of Judea. Lots of them thought that he himself was the Messiah. All the more reason that he humbled himself, deflected the attention, and shined the spotlight on Jesus instead. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we do the same? Is my life a testimony not to my greatness, but to his greatness. Does it point people to Jesus? Number three, repent of your sin. John's baptism of repentance isn't a one-time deal. We need to repent daily. If you're as sinful as me, maybe hourly. Maybe more than that. And if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. That offer is here for you this morning. God wants you to turn from your sin. Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, unless you do repent, you will perish. So the first step to your salvation is admitting that you have a problem. Confess it to God this morning. And then, number four, it's not enough to simply confess. You must receive Jesus. Receive him. It's not enough to turn away from your sin. You must turn to Jesus. It's not enough to be baptized and be absolved of your guilt. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in faith to trust him to be your righteousness. Quit trying to save yourself. You're not the solution. You're the problem. He's the solution. Trust him. We need a savior. God provided Jesus. Praise the Lord. You can receive him this morning. Number five, be baptized. If you've received him, be baptized. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Romans 6.4 says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Baptism is a good gift and the most powerful reminder of this new life that Jesus has offered you. A fresh start. Not just emptied of sin, but filled with the Spirit. What a precious gift. Repent and believe and be baptized. Next week, come talk to me. Let's pray.